Here we are. We're going to uh, continue to look at um, Philippians today, but I wanted to have uh, Cheryl read that portion of scripture because it ties into uh, Paul's experience. So we're going to focus in on uh, chapter one, verses 12 through 14. I'm going to read those to you in a moment, but um, so we've we've kind of, in a sense, finished Philippians. We've gone through from chapter one, verse one, all the way to the end of chapter four. So we've we've finished our sort of you know journey expositionally through Philippians. But what I wanted to do now is I wanted to go back and highlight a few things that either uh, we didn't get to emphasize previously or things that I think we need to come back around to. So that's what we're gonna be doing over the next few weeks as we'll remain here in Philippians for just a bit longer. And this passage here is one that I touched on in a previous uh, study, but didn't really elaborate on it. So I want to do that today. So let me read to us from Philippians chapter one, Paul says in verse 12, now I want you to know brothers and sisters that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more speak the word fearlessly. And so remember that this letter was written from Paul's prison cell. And so he's referring to his own experience at the moment. Now, once again, let me remind you, our theme through Philippians has been uh, the fellowship of the gospel. And so for Paul, everything is about the gospel and the fellowship of the gospel was the Philippians commitment to Paul to partner with him so that the gospel could go forth. But now Paul has been gone from them for quite some time and they receive word that Paul has actually been imprisoned in Rome. And you can only imagine the... Um, the concern that the Philippians would have had over this news. And so as Paul writes this letter to them, he's instructing them as we've seen in uh, different things throughout the letter, but he's also wanting to encourage them to not be overly concerned about his circumstances, but to trust the Lord and to know that even in the midst of that adversity, that God is at work. Now, Paul was a man whose one ambition in life was to know Christ and to make him known to others. That was the great passion of Paul's life, to know Christ and to make him known to others. With that being his one aim, he didn't think much about his own comfort or ease. Paul wasn't really all that concerned about 
Um, whether it was a comfortable situation or whether it was an easy situation, uh, Paul wanted to get the gospel to people. He didn't draw back from difficulty or danger. He pressed in rather when met with opposition. And in Paul's writings to the various churches, all of this comes across. Let me quote to you from, uh, first of all, something that he wrote to the Corinthians in the first letter, and then something that he wrote to them in the second letter. In 1 Corinthians 4, 11 through 13, it says this. Paul is speaking about himself and the other apostles. He says, up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. So look at the things that Paul mentions there. He speaks about being hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, persecuted. So you see, if Paul was interested in his own comfort or his own ease, he never could have uh, been an apostle, really. He never could have uh, you know, taken up that calling and done that work. But then in writing to the, uh, the Corinthians, once again, in his second letter, listen to what he says here. And now he's talking more specifically about his own experiences. He says, five times I received 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing. Wow, this is the life of the Apostle Paul. And so we see that because his, his great ambition in life was to know Christ and to make him known, he didn't really let these things discourage him. Uh, and he obviously did not let these things stop him. So when he ends up in prison in Rome, and, and let me just remind you that he had been jailed in Philippi. Now, remember, this is the church he's writing to. They know the history. Uh, Paul had come to Philippi because there was a vision that was given to him by God of a man in Macedonia saying, come over and help us. So Paul goes to Philippi. They find these, these women, uh, Lydia and others at the, at, the, at the river there, and a little fellowship forms. But then as they're, they're going about preaching the gospel in Philippi, there's a demon-possessed girl who uh, they deliver from this possession, but she happens to be a fortune teller and she has masters and uh, they have become wealthy through her fortune telling. Now, when, when Paul casts the demon out of her, she no longer has the uh, ability to uh, fortune tell. And so they're enraged. They take Paul and Silas and they throw him into jail. They beat them. And maybe, maybe you remember the story. So... So the Philippians know this about Paul initially, but now 
he is once again, not just in jail for a few days, but now he's serving a term in prison. And um, the, uh, so, so Paul is, uh, we, we see in, in the things that he said about himself, we see that it was his great passion for Christ and the gospel that um, caused him to press on even against all of these very, very difficult and challenging odds. Paul understood, and I believe he grew in his understanding of this. I don't, I don't think that this was uh, something he immediately understood, but remember the passage that Cheryl read uh, to us where um, Jesus says to Ananias about Saul of Tarsus, he says an interesting thing. He says, I've appeared to him to make him a witness to me. And then he says, and I will show him the great things that he must suffer for my namesake. And Paul's ministry was marked by that suffering. So I, I believe that Paul understood, but as I said, he grew in his understanding of this, that the primary way the gospel is going to advance in this world is through opportunity brought about by adversity opportunity brought about by adversity. That's the way the gospel advances. It was true then, it is true now. It's true in the larger context of the gospel's impact on society, as well as in its impact on individual lives. There's hardly a single individual or community that comes to faith without passing through some sort of, of a crisis. Think about it. Think about your own life. And I would be willing to bet that for probably almost everyone who's listening to me right now, that you would, part of your testimony would be that it was through adverse circumstances that you began to even think about um, your need for God. And it was probably those circumstances that, that were the catalyst for you coming to the Lord. It might've been uh, something like uh, a crisis of, you know, maybe, maybe a health crisis, or maybe it was a, a financial difficulty, or maybe it was in the context of a family and, and it was a family breakup, or uh, maybe, you know, there was a crime committed and you were involved in that or, or some kind of thing that brought you into a crisis that then led you to begin to think about things that you had not thought about before, namely your need for God. And it, it might've been one of those outward things that, that people could observe and see. But on the other hand, it might've been just something internal. There's an internal conflict that begins to develop. I think about my own life and I would say, that although most people wouldn't have looked at me and thought there was a crisis in my life, there actually was a crisis in my life. It was internal though. It was, it was a conflict that was raging within me. And it was through that conflict that I began to cry out and, and seek the Lord. And so that is the way things happen. And, and on a larger scale, with what we might call a spiritual awakening, that is quite often the, the way that it happens. The gospel often has its greatest impact in the context of personal 
or societal disruption. Now, here we are in the 21st century. Um, many, I think my, myself and many of you probably listening today, you can think back uh, to the, the period of the 1960s, the 1970s. Uh, some of us came to faith during that time. And it's interesting because the 1960s are looked upon in the United States these days with a lot of nostalgia and, uh, you know, it was the, the counterculture movement, the hippies, a lot of great music uh, came out of those days, the 60s and 70s. We still listen to that music today. And, and we look back on it a lot of times with fondness. And there was also a great moving of God's spirit that brought many people into the kingdom and a whole new work of God began uh, in those days that still goes on today. My point is this. I think most of the time we think back on it very nostalgically and very longingly and think, oh, those days were so wonderful. Even people, uh, just regular people look back on the 60s and they, they sort of glorify it and they think, oh, wow, it was just so amazing back then. And those of us in the church that came to faith back then and saw a great move of the spirit, we do the same thing. We say, oh man, if it could just be like, the, like, like it was back then. But what we often forget is there was radical societal upheaval at the time. The 1960s were unbelievably insane societally. There was major disruption around the world and here in the United States. I mean, if you think about it, in the 1960s, uh, 1963, the president of the United States was assassinated. 1968, the civil rights leader, Martin Luther King, was assassinated. Uh, same year, uh, Robert uh, F. Kennedy was uh, assassinated as well. He, he was a senator who was running for the presidency at the time. I mean, that is what you call disruption. That is what you call upheaval. There were a massive protest and marches and college students going crazy and uh, police shooting kids on the campus. I mean, this, it was societal upheaval and disruption, but it was in that context that God did an extraordinary thing. He poured out his spirit. And so why am I saying all of this? I'm saying all this because Paul understood that. He understood it in his own life as he went through that upheaval when he met Christ on the road to Damascus. He understood it from the other side in his imprisonment. He understood that the adversity of his own experience now as a, a preacher of the gospel could lend itself to the furtherance of the gospel. And that's what he says to the Philippians here in these verses. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, he's talking about his imprisonment, has actually advanced the gospel. You see, we look at a negative situation and we think, oh, that's, that's horrible, that's terrible. God, how could you let that happen? The Philippians probably were, uh, they were probably thinking that very thing. God, what are you doing? Paul, he's your man. He's the great apostle. He's the one who led us to you. And, and what is he doing in prison? Lord, you've made a mistake. They probably thought that. 
And understandable, we, we would think that sort of a thing too. But Paul says, no, actually, these events have turned out to advance the gospel. And then he goes on and he just gives a small sample of how the gospel was being advanced rather than hindered through his own experience. And he says here, he says, so it has uh, become known throughout the whole, notice, imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Now, the imperial guard, we have to understand, these are the elite uh, guard that um, tend to the emperor himself. So Paul is literally a prisoner of the emperor and he is being guarded by the imperial guard. But he's not just sitting there uh, minding his own business or keeping quiet or not conversing or anything like that. No, he's looking for and taking every opportunity that comes along to speak about the Christ for whom he is in chains. And at the end of the letter, Paul refers to the fact he sends greetings from those of Caesar's household. He sends those greetings to others in the church. What's implied there is that people in Caesar's household and undoubtedly some of the imperial guard came to faith. Now, here's the question. How would they even hear the gospel or ultimately come to faith unless somebody was there to tell them? And, and who could get in to bring them this message? Well, God has this very creative ways of doing things. And basically he just says, I'm gonna have my apostle uh, get arrested and he's gonna go and he's gonna become a prisoner in the house of Caesar. And I'm gonna use him there to spread the gospel. That's what's happening. And that's what Paul wants the Philippians to understand. So the imperial guard is influenced. And then a second thing that Paul says, he says, most of the brothers of the other Christians have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. So here was a second benefit of Paul's imprisonment. It emboldened others. They looked at Paul and they thought, well, look, if Paul can be in prison for his testimony for Christ, why are we timid? Why are we silent? Why aren't we more bold and courageous and fearless in our witness? And they decided we're gonna pull out all the stops. We're gonna share the gospel. We're gonna speak the gospel to people. And so we see, and then Paul goes on finally a few verses later, and he says that, that Christ is preached. That was the outcome of his imprisonment was the gospel went to places that it perhaps would not have gone to had he not been in those circumstances. Now, this is not just Paul's experience. This is the way things have worked throughout the long history of the church. And I wanna give you just a couple of quick examples um, of stories of adversity that have advanced the gospel in more recent times. And there are literally hundreds or probably even thousands of these stories that could be told, but I just wanna tell a, a few ones really, really quickly. And I, I, wanna, um, I wanna 
talk first of all about a woman named Corrie Ten Boom. Uh, some of you have heard of her. Corrie Ten Boom uh, was a Dutch woman, uh, part of the Ten Boom family. They were watchmakers in Holland, uh, I think in the Amsterdam area. And uh, during the, the Nazi occupation of Holland, their family, they, uh, they hid, protected, and, and tried to bring to safety Jewish people. And they were very successful for a long season, but finally they were discovered by the Nazis and they were all arrested and thrown into concentration camps. And in the concentration camp, uh, all of Corey's family members died. She was the one exception. And so she lived through the horrors of the Nazi concentration camps. She was uh, there confined in the Ravensbrück uh, concentration camp. And her, her story, the hiding place, and then uh, tramp for the Lord, all of these absolutely extraordinary stories of what happened to her uh, there and beyond. But, but a quick story um, after she was finally freed on a clerical error, she was to be put to death, but she was finally, uh, she was on a clerical error, she was freed and the, the war ended and so forth. And Corey went on to have an extraordinary ministry around the world. She actually became a good friend with Pastor Chuck Smith and she often attended church uh, here at Calvary Chapel and would occasionally speak to the congregation. But on one occasion, she went to Rwanda, Africa. And there as she was ministering, she would just get on a flight and fly places, feel like the Lord was telling her to go. And she would go by faith and she would get somewhere and find these extraordinary opportunities were opened up for her. But she was in Rwanda and, and there was a, a person there, a missionary there that she had uh, connected with in some way. And she was given an invitation um, through this woman to go and to visit a men's prison. And this, this prison was full of hardened criminals and very, very dangerous, dangerous people. And Corey was, you know, obviously she had been in a concentration camp, so she was rather fearless at this point, but she didn't really know what she could offer. She didn't know what she had to say. Uh, she prayed and, and God, you know, put a few things on her heart. She was, God put on her heart about the joy of the Lord and um, the love of Jesus and that. So, so anyway, she goes into this prison and she begins to address these prisoners. And as she's addressing them, now she's an old Dutch lady. And these are all, you know, probably young to middle-aged hardened uh, criminals. And um, so she's addressing them. And she said, uh, you know, a few seem to be open and she could kind of sense that a few of them were being touched by what she said, but the vast majority were not at, at all being impacted. And she thought to herself, Lord, I don't even know what to do or where to go. And suddenly um, she began to, uh, they, they, I think they asked, somebody you know, pointed out like, what did she know? She wasn't in their circumstances and all of that. So she went on to tell them about her life in Ravensbrook concentration camp, which obviously they didn't know anything about until she began to tell it. And she began to tell them the story of how every single day at four in the morning, they had to go out and line up and there they were in the freezing bitter cold. 
and uh, they, ha- they had to stand there for three hours and you know, all of this stuff. But as she was telling the story, she just absolutely captivated the hearts of her audience. And before you know it, all of these men were connecting with this woman and they were understanding that she knew something about suffering, that she knew something about injustice, that she knew something about imprisonment, that she knew all of that. And to make a long story short, what happened is she finally gave an invitation. How many of you would like to know this Jesus? And the entire uh, prison raised their hand to respond to Christ, even the guards. They all raised their hand and responded. And so they all came to Christ, this great harvest. And as Corey was leaving the, um, the prison that day, all of the, the prisoners followed her outside the prison gates with the guards. They didn't even worry about people escaping. And they surrounded her and they began to chant in their native language. And Corey asked, what, what are they saying? And they were saying, old woman, come back to us. Old woman, tell us more about Jesus. And so here's my point after that long story. Um, My point is that it was Corey's time in a Nazi concentration camp that opened the door, that paved the way for the gospel to be advanced among these Rwandan prisoners. Amazing. Who would have ever dreamed it? But you see, again, it's like Paul was saying that the things that have happened to me have happen for the advancement of the gospel. Another quick story. This one is familiar to many people, but perhaps you haven't heard it. But in, back in 1956, January of 1956, that's the year I was born, actually, um, there were five men and their families that had gone into the jungles of Ecuador, and they were seeking to reach uh, this unreached tribe, the Wadani tribe, the, the, known as the Alcas, but the Alca was a, uh, a name given to them because of their fierceness. So they were fierce, uh, murderous tribe. And anyway, they, they had felt called by God. They, they wanted to go and bring the gospel to these people. Well, in January of 1956, five men, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, and Ed McCauley, they all, in their attempt to get the gospel to the Wadani warriors, they died uh, at the hands of these warriors. And later, Minkai, uh, one of those warriors who had speared two of the men to death, he would become a Christian and he would become a leader of the church among his people, the Wadani people and actually the wives and the relatives of the men who died would go and they would minister among this murderous tribe. And through a process of time, the majority of the whole tribe would come to put their faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the point. The point is it was the death of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and the other three men that paved the way for the gospel to finally go in and that did advance the gospel among the people. Do you know when this happened, of course, uh, many people were just completely stunned. I read a, a great book on missions many years ago um, where the, the author of the book actually thought that these people had made a mistake. They didn't use their heads. They should have been wiser. They had weapons. Why didn't they shoot and kill the warriors? All of the speculation but 
we know from history and looking back with hindsight that it was, it was the fact that they died for their faith that was the catalyst to bring the Wadownies to faith in Christ. And so we see that these kinds of things, although they seem like that's not the way it should happen, these kinds of things are the things that God uses. And so that brings me to our current situation. And, and I, wanna, I wanna just tell you a few quick stories about the gospel impact in the COVID-19 crisis, because we are seeing through this COVID uh, thing around the world, we're seeing these kinds of things happen. Things are happening with people um, opening up to the gospel who previously would not give the time of day to a hearing of the gospel, but they're opening up now. Uh, a, a Muslim family, I recently heard the story, a Muslim family, uh, one, one person who's actually a believer in the larger uh, Muslim family uh, is invited because of the, the obvious uh, difference in, in the demeanor of this person over the others who are all fearful and, and, fu and full of uh, worry and so forth over COVID. They, they wanna know why this one family member, why do you have peace? And that opened up the opportunity to share the gospel and the family members uh, are open and a few of them actually put their faith in Christ. Lifelong Muslims born and raised in Islam. And, and this is just one example. There are many, many more. I have been in conversation with friends from all around the world, uh, literally. And we've been having Zoom meetings and we've been having encouragement times. And most of these people are people who lead churches and ministries. And I have heard so many amazing stories. I heard a, an amazing story from a friend of mine in Holland about um, how God has used this and opened a door to neighbors who uh, previously would, again, not have given the time of day to anyone for a hearing of the gospel who are now hearing and receiving and engaging. Uh, another friend in Austria was telling me about uh, a similar kind of a thing where uh, a man who had been very resistant and hardened and completely disinterested uh, because of the, the fear that has come about through COVID really began to open up and really began to inquire and, and actually asked for some sort of input and was given the link to their online service and began to watch it and then began to spread the word throughout his whole family, all of them practically atheist, if not, you know, professing atheist. But now uh, through this situation, coming to uh, a place where they want to hear the gospel and many are receiving the gospel and, and we could spend all day. I, I was actually thinking this week, I was thinking I wanna send out a, um, a call to people all around the world say, hey, send me your story about the extraordinary things that's happening uh, in your place where you are living or ministering uh, that, that are being prompted by 
the coronavirus. Um, I didn't get a chance to do that, but uh, we wouldn't have time to go through it anyway because there are so many things. But, but here's one more example that is so exciting. Um, in Britain, a group of musicians uh, got, got together and a, a, a young guy named Tim Hughes, Tim's a vicar in the Anglican church and he's a great songwriter. We sing many of Tim's songs and have done over the years. Well, Tim got a group of, uh, of musicians together in the UK and they produced what's called, um, it's just called the UK blessing. And they, they sang the priestly blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. There's a new um, rendition of that that's out. And so they, they recorded this and they posted it and they sent it out and it's become this unbelievable uh, sort of anthem uh, for many people in Britain right now. And it's had such an impact. The prime minister of Britain, Boris Johnson, he has awarded uh, the Points of Light Award to Tim Hughes for the production of the UK blessing. So listen to what uh, Boris Johnson wrote to uh, Tim Hughes. He said, at a time when our churches are closed, I am filled with admiration to hear how you have used the power of music to bring together Christians of all denominations from across our United Kingdom. Your sensational singing masterpiece, The UK Blessing, is truly uplifting and has touched millions around the world with this message of hope and its beauty. So on behalf of the whole country, I just want to say a big thank you for all that you do. That is extraordinary. That is amazing. Now, some of you know my history and connection with Britain, and it's still a very strong connection. I, I pretty much understand the, the culture of the UK. This is phenomenal. This is phenomenal coming from the prime minister, but even more so, it's phenomenal the, the recognition of the impact of this song sung by Christians from all of the different uh, denominations around the UK, how this song is bringing hope and comfort to an entire nation. And it's because of the current moment. It's because of what's happening with the coronavirus. And so this, this brings me around to the point that I really, uh, I, I want to emphasize today, and it's the point that the, uh, the circumstances that we find ourselves in, we might be tempted, some of us might be tempted to think this is hindering the gospel because after all, our churches are shut down, we can't go and have our worship services and, and those kinds of things. We all know that that's happening. So there's, there's a strong temptation to think that you know, this is wrong and something's a miss and, and we've got to we've got to force this thing to to get back to normal and, and all of that stuff. Uh, we, we've got to go back to the scriptures. And we've got to go back to what Paul said. Paul said the uh, what's happened to me, my imprisonment, this is in other words, Paul is saying this is God's plan to get the gospel to people who would not receive it otherwise. And I think that we should, as God's people, right now in this moment, I think we should adopt that same mentality that this 
is an uncomfortable circumstance, that this is less than desirable, that this isn't really what we would have chosen. We would love for there just to be a great outpouring of the spirit and all of our comfort and ease and prosperity just go on uh, business as usual. Of course, we would love that. But remember, the gospel often has its greatest impact in the context of individual and societal disruption. And so we need to think of the coronavirus as a similar kind of a situation to Paul's imprisonment and see it as a way that the gospel is being advanced. And so let's continue to be patient while the Lord does his work and the gospel advances. Let's continue to pray the Lord's will be done. Let's pray for our federal, state, and local leaders during this time. Let's pray like the Bible tells us to do. Let's pray for our leaders. Whether we like them or dislike them, whether they are uh, our party affiliation or not, that's beside the point. You know, when Paul exhorted the believers to pray for the Roman authorities, there, there weren't, uh, well, there's, a, there's some, this is a Christian senator. This is a, a, a pagan senator. We're gonna pray for the Christian, not for the pagan. Uh, you know, that, that didn't even exist. He just said, pray for them. Pray for those who rule over you. And so that's what we need to do on the federal level, on the state level, on the local level, that, that they will have wisdom. God is able. Uh, he's able to orchestrate things. Even we, we know this, we see this in scripture. We see God uh, using somebody like Nebuchadnezzar. We see God using somebody like Cyrus. We see God using these, these different people who don't even know him but he uses them to fulfill his purpose. So let's be praying for those people. Let's trust the Lord for our own well-being and provision. As I've mentioned before, this is a challenging time for us. This is a testing time for us. Are we going to trust the Lord during this time? Let's pray for those around us that God would use these circumstances, whether the pandemic or the economic fallout to turn their hearts toward him. Let, let's pray for people. Now, again, we want things to go back to normal. We all do. I'm, I'm there. I want things to go back to normal. When I think of the potential damage to the economy, that I, I, I see that as a negative on the one hand. But on the other hand, I have to remember that we live in a nation of, of idolatry. And one of the things we idolize is money. And so maybe this is a time where God's removing the idols. We have to think spiritually about these things. Let's pray God will use us personally to share the hope of the gospel with others. Let's pray for opportunities with neighbors, with uh, colleagues, with family members, that God will use us. Let's pray that his perfect timing will be worked out in all of this and that in his perfect timing, we will be able to gather again in our churches. And let's remember that the most important thing, 
this is what we have to keep in mind. The most important thing is the furtherance of the gospel. That's what trumps everything. That's what matters more than anything. The furtherance of the gospel. That's what matters most because only the gospel prepares us for eternity and every single person is headed to eternity. And as we see so many times, God is more concerned with a person's eternal destiny than with their temporal comfort. And he will oftentimes unsettle us temporally to secure us with him eternally. Over the years, over the years when praying for complex situations and things come up over the years, thing, you know, things happen. Um, and and as, as I've been confronted with various things over the years, these complex situations, whether they be um, socially or economically or politically or, or something like we're in at the moment, I always pray basically the same thing. I always default to this prayer. And this is my prayer. Lord, do whatever is best for your church and the furtherance of the gospel. See, as Christians, that should be our primary concern. Our primary concern is, Lord, what is, what is best for the church and for the furtherance of the gospel? Because that is what God is primarily about. Not that he's not involved with other things, but, but the church, God's people, his, his mission being carried out through the church. And so when we, whether we, we are experiencing these things ourselves or sometimes when I think about things going on in other places in the world and I'm perplexed as to how to pray for it, I don't know what the Lord wants. I just say, Lord, whatever's best for the church and for the gospel, I pray that you would do that. In 1949, I'm gonna close with this. In 1949, China had less than 1 million Christians. In 1949. Today, there are 100 million Christians in China. What happened? A 70 year period, basically. Uh, unbelievable, astounding growth of the church. What happened? Well, here's what happened. The communists took over in 1949. All Westerners were expelled, including the missionaries. Everyone thought it was the end of Christianity in China. That was the, that was the thinking at the time. The expelled missionaries were in despair, thinking all their work had been in vain. And you can read, if you read some of the uh, missionary biographies that we often refer to, you will find that this was a sentiment that was being experienced. Little did they know the great harvest that was yet to come. They didn't know. For them, the worst thing imaginable was what happened in 1949 when Mao Zedong and, and the communists came to power. That was the worst thing. In their minds, all of their efforts for all of these years, about 100 years now, had, had just been completely wiped out. But little did they know that God had a great plan 
to save many. Perhaps there is a great harvest yet to come here among us and COVID-19 and its fallout are preparing the way. May it be so, Lord. That's our prayer. But remember, remember the furtherance of the gospel. That's the primary objective that we should all have because the gospel pertains to eternity, not to the temporal. And so as, as I close, I want to just spell out the gospel real quickly. What is the gospel? It's the good news that God through Jesus Christ has made a way to reconcile human beings to himself. See, the Bible is clear. Hum, humanity is God's creation. We were made by God. And we were made to live in a relationship with God. But something called sin entered in. And sin was that act of rebellion against God. And that tore into the relationship that once existed. Reconciliation is bringing two parties back together. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus came and he made reconciliation so that we could be brought back into a relationship with God. We could understand why it is that we exist. We could know our, the meaning and purpose of our lives and we could live in a harmonious, loving relationship with the one who made us. That's what Jesus came to do. That's the good news. That's the gospel. He's reconciled us to God, but now we have to respond to what he's done. And we respond to what he's done by simply receiving him by acknowledging that I am separated from God and my sins have separated me from God. But Jesus, I thank you that you died for my sins and I pray that you would forgive my sins and I pray that you would bring me to the Father. And as you would say that, as you would uh, cry out to the Lord right now, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. As you would call out to Jesus, he will come and he will bring you that gift of salvation, which is reconciliation with God. And you'll begin a whole new life living in fellowship with God, the reason that you exist. So Lord, thank you for the gospel. And thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of adversity, that the gospel is advancing. And so we pray today, Lord, I wanna pray for every believer, everyone who knows you. I pray that each and every one of us will be strengthened in our, in our faith and in our perseverance during this time, that we would patiently wait upon the Lord and that we would see your work accomplish the work that you want to do. <coughs> Lord, bless and provide for your people. And I pray too, Lord, for anyone that's tuned in who has not been reconciled, who hasn't confessed they're a sinner and the, the, they need Jesus as a savior, I pray that they would do that now and that you would come in and give them eternal life. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.